Welcome to the Circle of Birth podcast. I'm your host and advocate, Ali Kranz. These podcasts are here to gather stories, people and information to better our understanding of the wisdom of birth and how we can reclaim our connections to birth from conception and beyond. You will hear stories not only from Australia but from all over the world, bringing together women, partners, midwives, doulas and all the people that have a birth story to share. So jump right in for this next Circle of Birth story. Episode 38 is here. I love this episode with Dr. Erin Bowe. Uh, she was so enthusiastic in sharing this uh, story. And the approach was really light and inspiring. Erin is a clinical psychologist and hypnobirthing practitioner. Uh, that she became right at the end of her pregnancy. I do love these hypnobirthing episodes and Erin shows us how you can really have a great birth when you shift your perceptions. This is an induction story in a hospital with a diagnosis of gestational diabetes and it's got such a positive twist on it that I really love Erin for wanting to share this to inspire others. So please enjoy. Also, please subscribe to the website circleofbirth.com and I'm calling out far and wide for donations to help support the show to reach its full potential. You can check out the donation info via the website. Thank you. Hi, Erin. Uh, thank you so Hi, much. Hi, Hi. Thank you for joining us on the Circle of Birth. It's an absolute honour for you to come on and I'm really glad that we've got your story today. It's uh, another hypnobirthing story and you're a hypnobirthing practitioner as well as a psychologist. Um, but we've got a yes. beautiful induction story where you used your hypnobirthing. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on the show and to share this story. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's okay. So how about we kick off this show and you can tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your background as a psychologist as well and how you came into your birth experience. Yeah, sure. So um, at the moment, I guess I'm mostly, like so many women, describing themselves as a mum. Um, I do other things, but primarily I'm thinking of myself as a mum. So I have an 18 months. No, she's 19 months. She's 19 months. forgot how old my child is. Um, I have a 19-month-old daughter and I'm currently 22, pre- 22 weeks pregnant with the next one. Oh, that's um, right. So yeah. it's all happening. Because you wrote about that too. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. It's only just starting to get exciting now because I've yeah. been sick and, you know, tired and it's definitely harder the next time around with subsequent pregnancies, as people say. Um, but no, it's all good. So that's that side of things. Um, in terms of, I guess, a bit more about me, like my life before children, which I have a vague memory of. It's in there somewhere. Um, I'm from Tasmania originally, so I grew up there and I went to uni there. And then, like so many Tasmanian people do, we moved to Victoria for better job opportunities and we moved to St Kilda. Um, I think we chose St Kilda because we had family who lived here at the time. My husband's an identical twin and his brother had already lived over here for, I don't know, five years or something. And I think 
two weeks after we moved over here to be closer to them, he got a job offer at Google in the US and they were gone within oh, like the end of the month. So that's our funny story about why wow. we moved to Victoria <laughs> to be closer to family and then they left. They but, left. you know, that's okay. And that's left okay. In a, another country as well. <laughs> yes, and haven't been back. So, you know, they're very happy over there and that's absolutely fine. And, um, oh, look, I so much fell in love with St Kilda, but it just. Again, same old story, couldn't afford a house, Um, you know, our apartment was being sold from out underneath us and we thought, oh, should we buy it? And we looked at how much they wanted for it and we went, oh, no, that's not happening. Um, And also, I suppose that thing of thinking, oh, you know, I'd like to have a family and thinking, okay, my life is going to be, you know, going to playdates at parks and that kind of thing, which is fine, but I wanted chickens and I wanted space for my dogs and... Um, so after living in St Kilda for five or six years, we moved to the country out in the Macedon Ranges and it's very, very serene and I'm loving it. Excellent. And just to sort of backtrack a bit, university, you were studying psychology. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I trained as a clinical psychologist and, um, the perinatal training kind of just came with, um, experience and supervision and extra training. So, um, yeah, I guess I've worked in private practice for oh, eight years, maybe seven or eight years probably. And as part of that, like, I guess clinical psychology is quite broad. Like you see quite a lot of different presentations, but I always kind of liked, um, perinatal psychology as I guess a little adjunct to that. And a huge part of that work has always been, you know, things like birth trauma, lots of perinatal anxiety and just worry. Um, Lots and lots and lots of women just worried about pregnancy, whether it's based on a previous pregnancy or based on other experiences that they've had and just, you know, the idea of how they're going to cope. And then sort of through um, postpartum period, I guess, looking at things like um, maintaining relationships and how that's sometimes really difficult after a baby. Um, Parent coaching, you know, just I kind of call it guilty mum coaching. There's a lot, a lot of mums out there that I've seen who, you know, don't have a diagnosis. They're perfectly capable, competent women. But, um, you know, I guess we're all used to being like competent and high achieving and setting our minds on a task in a work capacity and then you have this like beautiful little child and they don't necessarily always do what you want and you can't always I suppose put in your best effort and it it works out and people say thank you and you get appreciation and all of that so there's that kind of um I suppose anxiety that develops that we all have and I have it too about you know trying to be everything to everybody and it doesn't it just doesn't work. So, um, yeah, dealing with a lot of guilt that needs to be redirected somewhere else I'm is a lot of what I do. There isn't a um, clinical term yet for mother guilt. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will come. Yeah. It will come, no I doubt. Know, yeah. I just I hope, yeah. Yeah, it's a horrible feeling. <laughs> it is. I think part of it is just um, – normalising it though hopefully and it doesn't become like I'd hate for people to think like this is a pathological kind of diagnosis that you get it's just a very very normal thing it's just a shame that it's such a normal thing Mm, yeah and it passes to really sit with that and know that it's not you know that this passes it's it's really hard to sometimes when you do have all those social and cultural pressures around you 
Yeah, it's hard. Like yeah. it is, it's so hard. And I know it's a thing that people keep saying over and over, but I think they keep saying it over and over because it's true, is that we just don't have the support that previous generations had. You know, we all move further away from our families or we, you know, don't have supportive families. Friends are busy. They live far away. Like it's just, it's just getting so hard to actually have a little tribe of people around you to actually help and give you support and advice. So then we get stuck and we think we have to do it all ourselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is. It comes down to support and just the complexities too of mothering these days. I feel it's sometimes it can be quite in, yeah, complex, I think is the word when you just need to scale it back a bit and simplify things. Mm. Which is hard because <laughs> you're busy and working. Yeah, and yeah, it is. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so just tell me, I'd love to um, just talk about your crunch point of moving to Saint, from St Kilda out to, the, out to the Macedon Ranges where you are now. What was the decision? Um, you came home one day <laughs> exhausted, morning sickness, pregnant. Yes. Only to find. Yeah, it was a really... Yeah, only to find. I think um, it was either four or five uh, men, very, very drunk. I didn't realise at the time. I was so oblivious. I just wanted to get in and get through the door. And they were all, like, having a wee on the front gate. And, of course, you know, me approaching them, I just realised, well, I shouldn't have done that. They all kind of, like, turned around in their drunken state and I just went, oh, no. I just I don't need this in my life. Like yeah. So that was that was definitely the crunch point. There had been a few points before that. Like I know everybody goes on about St Kilda being really notorious and oh there's lots of druggies and there's lots of wild and wonderful people and there's always screaming and things happening and that's fine. But uh yeah, the coming home to weighing on the gate was like, no, that's that's probably enough. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm done. Imagine. (laughs) (laughs) So how did the pregnancy go? Let lead us into your pregnancy when you 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 guys moved and things would have changed a lot then. So how did the rest of your pregnancy go? Yeah. It was oh it's an interesting kind of um pregnancy in general. So I suppose if I backtrack a little bit to that, um, Stella, so that's my first daughter, she's a little rainbow baby. So she was conceived six weeks after I had my miscarriage with my first baby. And so, um, you know, the miscarriage, it was at 10 weeks. It was, you know, these things are never like great to deal with. Um, but I suppose part of that was both my husband and I, like we really wanted to get pregnant again quite soon. And I have like this kind of snapshot memory. It's funny how you have these snapshot memories in your mind of our obstetrician saying, you know, when we found out that we were losing the baby and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. Cause I guess you'd planned, you know, Christmas and you were going to have this little baby at Christmas And that just hit me like a ton of bricks, thinking, yeah, I didn't realise I had made that plan in my mind. But then, you know, there's this little voice inside me that said, I could still do it. I could still still have a baby by Christmas. You know what? I'm going to do it. Like, as if I have any control in these sort of things. (laughs) But lo and behold, there we go. And um, yeah, we ended up, we did end up having a little baby by Christmas. So it's, yeah, it's just amazing sometimes what works out when you are hopeful and you're positive and you just, I can't imagine life without Stella. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the background about her and that pregnancy. Um, 
in terms of, I suppose, moving and dealing with all of that, I think we'd moved when I was just starting my third trimester. So I was just coming out of the fog of hyperemesis, which I've had in both pregnancies, um, which is not pleasant, but, you know, I was just getting out of that fog. And then I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes, which was a real shock, actually. Um, I didn't have any symptoms, not that many people do, and I didn't have any of the risk factors. And, you know, I went and took the horrible sugary drink thinking, oh, okay, this is just a formality. It's just what we need to do. Fine. That'll be the end of it. Um, and so, yeah, I tested positive and I just burst into tears and thought, oh, what have I done wrong? Which, of course, you know, your logical brain knows better and knows that you haven't done anything wrong. It's just, that's just the luck that you get with this pregnancy. Um, but it turned out to be fine. Like, it's funny, like my blood sugar didn't actually spike ever for the rest of the pregnancy after that test. So I don't know whether you get into all the what the parameters of the test are. Should we be testing for it? Does it just make people anxious? I don't know. I guess in my case, I'll say probably having that little bit of extra attention on my health, even though I was pretty healthy anyway, was actually really good. And my third trimester, I would say, was by far my best, happiest, healthiest trimester because I was really, really properly looking after myself. Um, so, yeah, the rest of the pregnancy went pretty well yeah, after so that. Just just to sort of go back with your diagnosis, did you? what sort of model of care did you have at that point? So I was under an obstetrician. Um, that was my choice anyway, so that's where I'd started. And then from there, after the diagnosis, I went and saw a diabetes educator who was a trained nurse but also had research interests in um, diabetes, particularly in diabetes in the perinatal period, and she was awesome in terms of the physical aspects of the illness and how to manage it. Not a lot of psychological support, I have to say. Um, so that's something that's kind of interests me personally, just in terms of like how are you supposed to cope with, a, <laughs> with an illness that you don't have symptoms for and that nobody can kind of get their head around. Um, I guess in terms of all that body image stuff that happened, like I had the whole gamut from um, comments of people, like some people saying, oh, how can you have diabetes? You're so tiny. Like don't, isn't only fat people who get diabetes, which is, you know, a lovely thing to say yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, you know, I also got the other end of the, of the perspective with people saying, oh, is that why you're so big? Like you're so big, your bump is so big, that must be why you're so big. So, you know, and then all the um, – I suppose sometimes anxieties that people put onto us about, oh, you're going to have a big baby. And when, no, well, let me tell you. And I ended up, um, ended up taking some of that frustration out and writing an article um, for Essential Baby, I think is where it was published. Yeah, about, you know, why you shouldn't fear having a big baby and it's fine and don't, you know, let people freak you out about, oh, your baby's going to be too big and you're not going to be able to push it out. So I got my back up a bit about that. But, well you know, done. in the end, it was fine. Yeah. Well, my baby wasn't massive. She was eight six. You know, she came out just fine, like babies do. Um, yeah, so that was an interesting, I suppose, part of having that illness is the assumptions that people make about where it comes from, what you know, what what the causes are going to be, what it's going to do to you, and all that kind of stuff. So that's anyway, that's kind of getting a bit carried away. Um, yeah, important stuff though, especially um, I. You know, it's not just with gestational diabetes but, you know, just pregnancy in general. We're just constantly bombarded by 
um, other people's stuff sometimes. I think it's it's also just it's that sort of um, transformative part of being pregnant and becoming a mother is that you learn you learn how to better stand up for yourself because I guess you think like sometimes this is like it's a bit of a manipulative strategy but it works that I use with clients all the time is like saying that the way that you talk to yourself like would you talk to your son or your daughter like that like would you speak to them the way that you've just spoken about yourself well no then why are you doing it to yourself so it kind of um along the way whether you realize it or not I think it teaches us to actually think about taking better care of ourselves and thinking more about how we can assertively say what we want to happen if yeah. we kind of can project that onto you know well I wouldn't let someone bully my child I wouldn't let someone tell my child what to do and tell them what's best for them so why am I doing that for myself we do it all the time it's just the nature of women I think <laughs> but yeah that's an interesting thing to think about is that article still available yeah, it should yeah. be. Um, so if, when did I write that? A couple of years ago. Yeah, I'll look for it. Well, I'll just get you to send me the link and then I'll put it in the resources so people can access it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right, so, um, you know, heading into the sort of last part of pregnancy, what were you looking at um, in regards to the birth? What were your options and um, what were you told that you needed to do with the diagnosis? Yeah, it's interesting actually. Like I, I had a really good um, obstetrician, and I mean she's she's still my obstetrician. I chose her again. She's just very laid back. There was no kind of real mention of the diabetes again. Like it was, um, you know, I tested my blood sugar every day, and then at the end of the week, like I'd send my stats off to my diabetes educator, and she'd say, "Yep, yeah, that's fine. Just keep doing what you're doing," and we did that like every week until birth really um so there wasn't really any conversations about oh we might need to do this intervention or we might need to do that intervention right up until probably 40 and a half weeks and then like I'd had um I guess prodromal kind of symptoms on and off um you know like tons of Braxton Hicks which were turning more into like very, very mild contractions and, you know, having days on and off where I thought, mm, this might be the day, but it never sort of built up um, into anything more significant. And so my OB said, oh, hmm, look, we'll just book an induction. And then she said, and I quote, and I quote this back to her, there is no way you're going to need this, not a chance. We'll just book it as a formality. And I went, yeah, okay, that sounds good. So there wasn't like a lot of pressure. It was just a, uh, it's the typical sort of thing. Once you get past 41 weeks, you know, we're a little less comfortable. Let's just kind of do this. And I suppose I went along with it because I thought, yeah, okay, that sounds reasonable. But also, not that I was promised, but I had it in my head I wasn't going to need it. And I did everything in my power to not need it. Um up until the day before the induction was booked and I went, oh, okay, I'm going to have to shift my focus from let me do everything I can to not be induced um, to I'm going to just have to accept the journey that this is taking and, you know, I guess stop fighting it because I can spend my days going, come on, come on, come on, come out, come on out. I don't want some and just, you know, come on, baby, come out. And we did have conversations, Stella and I, 
she didn't talk back, not that I could hear, but we did have conversations like this every day. Like in the shower, I'd just give her a good pep talk and say, now, are you sure you don't want to come out today? Um, I think I might have jinxed this for myself anyway because I guess the other thing that was going on in the background is being a city person, um, when we moved to the country, I didn't have a driver's licence yet. So that was something, again, in my third trimester, I went, oh, I should probably get onto that. So I had my test, my learner's test booked when I was 38 weeks pregnant. And so leading up to that, I kept saying to Stella, Mm, just just hold on, hold on until after mummy's test, hold on until after mummy's test and then, you know, like you're free to come out. So I suppose after weeks and weeks and weeks of being told not to come out, um, she listened and decided she, she would just stay there until she was ready. So <laughs> I, I, I just think that's funny. But <laughs> like you told me not to come out. <laughs> yeah, here. yeah, mixed messages, yeah. mixed messages all the time. So by the time, like after the test was passed, and of course there was all the anxiety about, oh, God, what if I go into labour in the car? What if, you know, like just the kind of typical thoughts that you have. Um, but once that was the test was passed, it was like, okay, yep, that's fine. And then I really, really properly like relaxed into this. Yep, I'm ready for this baby to come any day. Now that's fine. But yeah, she um she wasn't ready. So I suppose there's <laughs> it's all the hindsight things that you do of, oh, what if I just waited another day? What if I just waited another week? But I guess because of the diabetes it complicated things a little bit in terms of I went with the path of least resistance probably for other people rather than for myself and possibly like second time around I would have been a bit I'd, I'd be a bit more pushy or just not turn up to the induction that's an option um but at the time like I'd gotten myself into this headspace of all right this is this is just what I'm going to do and I can do this that's that's just you know what it will be so it was okay in the end and in the end it was kind of like a yeah I think I'd just better accept going with this rather than you know up until the day going, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I'm not sure about this, it was just easier to say, yeah, I can do this. And thinking like, you know, it's not ideal. I don't think anybody would say induction is ideal, but there are plenty of circumstances where it's necessary or it might even be what the woman, what the woman chooses and that's her choice if that's what she wants to choose. So, um I guess like with all things that I approach with pregnancy, there's the kind of, there's the ideal, but I'm still very pro-choice and pro, you can have whatever birth you want to have and, you know, there's nobody to say that you won't be able to cope with something if it's not, you know, your first priority, your first preference, if that makes sense. Yeah. So just to sort of top on that, hypnobirthing, did you, how did you come into that? because you used the methods before yeah. we headed into the birth story. Maybe just touch on the hypnobirthing. And... Yeah, it's all kind of intertwined. So um, I don't know, there's something about me that when I get to the end of pregnancies, I decide to just take on a bunch of projects. So as well as moving house and learning to drive, I decided I'd train in hypnobirthing as well. So um, it was something I'd been aware of for like quite a while actually. Like with perinatal work, I'd heard of it before and I'd always thought, oh, I might do that as an adjunct to my practice but never quite gotten around to it. And then once it came to my own birth, I realised I had some, you know, interesting thoughts popping up about pain and about how to manage pain and um, 
you know, what sort of birth I wanted to have. And I guess prior to learning more about hypnobirthing and learning more just about natural physiological birth, I was very much someone who was like, yep, give me the drugs. Um, I'm a scientist. I Like, why wouldn't you just harness technology to make your life easier? I can't believe it. But there you go. And, you know, then one afternoon I watched The Business of Being Born and I went, oh, my God, like, no, there's a better option for me to get around this. And um, I reminded myself of, I suppose, a different sort of pathway I'd gotten into. So my PhD in clinical psych um, was on self-harm, like specifically, I suppose, the psychophysiology of self-harm. And I got into that because, again, this idea of pain and being someone who I would describe as like a massive wuss, I was fascinated by anyone who could deliberately into themselves like and you know I just I couldn't get my head around it so I studied that because I thought wow this is so fascinating and it got more fascinating as I learned um you know that there's a really strong physiological response that happens for a lot of people who cut themselves they have this huge release of endorphins you know their heart rate goes down their breathing slows and they just become so elated or relaxed and it just it's so it's such an addictive thing um so I suppose I knew from doing that research and from trading trading lots and lots of people who engaged in self-harm and they all kind of said this similar effect that they noticed even if they didn't necessarily understand that's exactly why they were doing what they were doing um it made sense and so I thought you know like your brain is this amazing 24-hour pharmacy it's just a matter of figuring out how to break in, I suppose. Um, there's lots of good drugs already in there, ready, waiting for your use. It's just a matter of, yeah, training your mind to figure out how to release them. So I thought, okay, if that's true for self-harm, if it's true for things like if you go back to Victorian times, you know, before there was anesthesia, um, people used to use hypnosis to get people to relax, to get them to focus on something other than the pain. So I thought, okay, I know there's something in this other than using um, synthetic drugs to manage pain. So I thought, okay, what what can I what can I learn about this? And hypnobirthing um, just made so much sense, like for me personally, but also from, I suppose, the sciencey background I came from, I found there was just such a lot of good evidence for it. And it just made so much sense in terms of that mind-body connection and how we can do amazing things if we know how to train our mind to do what we want it to do. So I thought, yep, I'm. this is a good time. I'm pregnant. I, I don't want to, you know, experience all the things that other women worry about, you know, pain and anxiety and fear and all that sort of stuff. And I realized even though I was working, you know, in perinatal trauma and anxiety, I didn't actually know a whole lot about the physiology of birth, like not the real nitty gritty what exactly happens what exactly is going on in your body when you give birth. And so I thought I'll train in this hypnobirthing for me just for my pers- just for my personal use and I'll make myself a guinea pig and see if it works. And if it works, I'm going to use it. And if it doesn't work, well, you know, that's another bit of training. We'll just put it down to it didn't work for me. But I just got so into it and it made so much sense. And, yeah, as I said, kind of leading up to um, being induced for my first birth, it came in so handy and I, I can't imagine how I could have coped with birth without it, to be honest. So 
did you go to like face-to-face classes or workshops or you did it online? How did you do the training? So I did um, online training. Um, there was training in Melbourne, but it was the week <laughs> that I was due to give birth. So I thought I probably shouldn't um, do that, take on too much. So yeah, I just, I did an online, um, well, it wasn't, it, yeah, it was online, a practitioner course because um, I thought, you know, I can't help myself rather than just going along and being a participant. Um, I want to train in it. So I want to get the real, like, lowdown. I want to know everything about this that I possibly can. So, yeah, I did it online and it was just such a great – it was such a great platform, honestly. It was like being in a classroom anyway. Um, and just the people I've met um, from doing that course, it's just such an amazing – group of women and it's just such a positive space to be in I suppose coming from uh well being a psychologist I mean let's be honest people don't come and see me when they're happy (laughs) they're well together they come to me when they're in crisis and like this is you know often it's the last resort and they're miserable and I get to see the journey of them being happy but it takes a long time so I think one of the things I really liked about um I suppose doing birth work as opposed to just the psychology stuff is that it's not so much focused on, you know, pathology and about trying to cure people of things and, you know, there's a, there is a pretty much guaranteed happy outcome at the end. You get a baby. Mm. So yeah. it's just such a nice positive space to be in. Mm. So pretty much you did this course right at the end of your pregnancy um, you released mm. a lot heading into induction. You were ready. Um, you had your focus there. And take us through the birth story. Yeah, so I woke up <laughs> the morning of Stella's birth about five in the morning. So we live, you know, kind of 50 minutes from Melbourne and I had to be at the hospital I think at about eight or something. So we got up early. And the thing I remember most of getting myself into a good headspace and not doing that, like, oh, I'm going for this induction, it's going to be horrible, was I got up and there was just the most amazing pink sky. Like, it's the most amazing candy rose pink I'd ever seen. And so I just took a moment, took a breath and went, you know what, today's the day I get to meet my little girl. Like, how many people could do that? Wake up in the morning, see an amazing pink sky and go, I get to meet my little girl today. And so that was pretty exciting. Like it was a bit of nervousness and a bit of mixed with excitement, but I'm a big believer in, um, you know, the again, psychophysiology. Nervousness and excitement are pretty much the same thing at a physiological level. Your heart rate goes up, you, you know, feel a bit clammy, sweaty, your eyes dilate, all that sort of stuff. So you're better off just telling yourself that you're excited. That's a better way to channel it. So rather than being nervous, I told myself I was excited. Um and I think we just – we had a bit of breakfast. We drove in. It was pretty quiet. And I just kind of had this, like, I guess, odd sort of um, experience of – I'm sure other people experience this too. It's like every – you just – time just sort of stops. And it's like everybody else is going about their business, rushing off to work, not noticing things. Don't they know I'm having a baby today? Like, don't they know my daughter is being born today? I guess I was high on the excitement, but it's just kind of like, oh, everyone else is just going on with their ordinary things and I get to go, I'm going and having a baby, like this is huge. Um, 
So I was pretty excited by the time we got to the hospital. Um, <laughs> the nurse who registered me in wasn't so excited. She was at the end of her shift and she was pretty tired. Uh-huh. So, you know, again, I hadn't really thought – I just thought I'm going to go in and everyone's going to be like – I don't know what I thought. I thought, oh, they're going to be cheering. They're going to be so excited with me. I didn't think about the realities of like end of night shift, everybody's buggered. They're – you know, oh, yeah, okay, let's settle you in. Oh, that was a bit bit of a letdown, um, but it was fine. It was just, you know, my level of emotional engagement wasn't the same as theirs and that's to be expected so early in the morning. Um, and I just had to wait until, like, the midwife, who was actually going to be my midwife during the birth, came on and she was she'd slept the night before so she was much more excited and that was fine but yeah it was a funny experience and I wasn't expecting someone to just be like oh yeah here you go fill in your details see you later uh-huh. um, just another so, day <laughs> yeah I know but it's not just another day this is like the day of my daughter's birth so yeah. that's I was obviously really really jazzed for this and I think for anyone who um is having like an induction or a cesarean or something where you know it's a planned day I think you know, you might as well psych yourself up for it. Why not? You miss out on the element of surprise, so you might as well just psych yourself up for it like it's, you know, the best party of your life. Confusing the sky, that was beautiful actually. It's just to wake up first thing and then to focus on that positive. And it was a nice anchor. Yeah, it was a nice anchor as well. Like I think um, for me, I mean, everybody's different. I used a kind of range of different techniques. There were visual ones, there were auditory ones, there were touch ones, like using your whole senses, but definitely trying to take my mind back to that picture of the pink sky and how excited I felt um, was a nice thing to come back to when things were kind of getting a bit tough, um, which they did quite quickly. So the whole kind of active labour part was really only an hour and a half. It went pretty fast. Um, so they- oh, I can't remember so they gave you syntocin straight away or how What? Did, how did you enjoy No, not straight away. So I think the first thing was I had my waters broken and then sat with that for a little bit, was given some IV fluids, um, I guess, because people thought I was in there for the long haul um, and that's kind of standard, I guess. All the equipment I was hooked up to was portable so I could move around. I was pretty free to uh, come and go as I want. Um, So then I think maybe half an hour they let me sit with that and then they just slowly, I thought it was slowly, maybe it wasn't slowly, introduced with the Sinto. And it, yeah, it, it went pretty fast. Like I have to say in thinking about planning for the birth, not that I'd planned really rigidly, and I don't think anybody should plan these things really rigidly, but in terms of thinking, well, I might get in the shower, I might get my iPod set up, I might, you know, kind of do a few different things here and there, and there wasn't really much opportunity for that. I very much went from feeling a few kind of niggles and, um, you know, bouncing on a birth ball going, okay, this is some sensation happening to then sort of leaning over the bed and going, yep, this is proper sensation now and it's getting intense. So it didn't take very long at all. Um, it's kind of one of those things really where nobody thought it was going to be as quick as it was. You know, I remember at one point uh, filling out like my dinner order for the night because they thought, well, you know, you're going to be in labour during lunch and we won't worry about lunch 
because, you know, you'll be busy. So I suppose um, my midwife, oh, she was so lovely. She had also said to me, she was so excited I was doing hypnobirthing. Um, she knew a bit about it. She wasn't trained in it, but she was just so so stoked for me. Um, she had said, oh, my shift finishes at three and I really hope I'll, I'll get to see your birth. And, you know, women in labour are so suggestible. So I said to myself, yep, that sounds totally manageable. We're going to have a baby by three. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you tell yourself all sorts of interesting things when you're in labour. But that was one of the things I'd suggested to myself. And I'm like, yeah, I really want her to be there too. So that's what we'll do. Um, yeah, so probably – Somewhere around the 10 o'clock mark, I guess. I'd started at 9, so around about 10 o'clock. That's when I really needed to go inward. I was really starting to feel like, okay, my breathing needs to change now. It needs to change from relaxation breathing into like proper time to breathe baby down and just really concentrate all of my energy on what I needed to do and just sort of blacking everything else out. So I was still leaning over the bed at this point and I just shoved my face in a pillow and just blocked everyone and everything out pretty much. Um, And I got my husband to do some acupressure on my lower back. He didn't really know that that's what he was doing at the time. It's one of those things that I'd sort of read up a bit last minute and I'm so glad I did because – I think acupressure, if you're being induced, it just go hand in hand so beautifully in terms of managing those intense sensations. So he pretty much, you know, there was no like nice light strokes. It was like dig your thumbs into my sacrum and just keep them there. And that was such a nice relieving sensation. Um, so I think, yep, I'll, I'll recommend it to anybody who's ever going into labour that teaching your partner um, how to how to learn to do some acupressure is just the best thing ever. And now, of course, you know, you can just get on YouTube. There's apps. There's all sorts of things available. And the nice thing about um, the acupressure for your lower back is it's not like you don't have to be really, really technical about where you're going. It's one of those things like you'll know the spot once you're there and then it's like, yep, just keep your thumbs there and keep them, keep them there with lots of pressure. So that was really, really good, that and – kind of I suppose having to surrender that's the big thing is not fighting those waves when they come and they did they came so close together and they were so intense that I think there was barely time to catch my breath before the next one came um but you know it was okay it was manageable I just kept focusing on um as I said my breathing so making sure I was like really concentrating my breathing on bringing this baby down into that nice J shape imagining that so I used a mixture of thinking about I guess the inner workings of my body the inner workings of my uterus what does it look like what are the muscles doing and I think I found a lot of comfort in that I think for women who potentially go into this thinking I'll just wing it like I think those overwhelming sensations when you don't know what they are could really really be quite um dizzying really like but I think for me having an understanding of what was happening what those muscles were doing kind of even being able to visualize yeah what they needed to do where they needed to go how baby was actually going to come down 
was such such comfort so I didn't have to panic about, oh, what is that sensation? What is that? Oh, this is too much. I just can't cope. So I knew what I had to focus on. And in between the surges, um, I found myself using this strategy where – so in Hypnobirthing, um, Hypnobirthing Australia, one of the tracks we have is called Surge at the Sea and a lot of that is just imagining kind of like – contractions or surges as we call them as riding over waves and I found that so useful because it just felt like being in the ocean and having this massive wave coming at you and you've got a moment where you can either panic and you just sink under and you're done or you can go okay I need to surrender I need to just let my body flop and I'll just float I'll just float over them. So I kind of imagined myself as this like wobbly little octopus and I still say that because I think it's kind of hard to say wobbly octopus and keep your mouth tight and keep your body tight, if that makes sense. So I just imagine being this floppy little octopus riding a wave and having to just let go and let it all wash over me. That's and that was so really, sweet. really useful. Yeah. So cute. <laughs> It worked for me. What can yeah. I say? I'm just picturing this like floppy little octopus at the moment. I'm visualising it. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I think um, I ended up using – someone gave my – it's coincidental I suppose, but someone actually gave my daughter uh, a little octopus toy when she was born and I hadn't told them about my wobbly octopus. I think it was like a great-grandpa or something. He would have no idea. Um, and then I saw it the other day and I took a little – picture and I yeah stuck it on my Instagram with um you know like an affirmation that goes with it and I didn't actually use that for my own birth but then I remembered it and thought yeah wobbly octopus wobbly octopus just think of yourself like a wobbly octopus and ride the waves and that it'll work it worked for me anyway (laughs) excellent um you have to share that with us too if you can I'd love to oh yeah sure yeah (laughs) absolutely And so how did you, just during this time, how was your husband going? Did he get sort of upped on the hypnobirthing side of things and knew what to expect from you? Yeah, so that was um, one of the nice things about, I suppose, doing the online course is that I also got access to the online course for like non-practitioners, so clients, and there's like a whole series of videos that you can watch, which again is just like being in a classroom with lots of birth videos and that sort of thing. So he watched a lot of it on the train or, you know, just at night time I kind of, you know, just say, okay, let's do a bit of this. Um, so he watched a lot in his own time and learned a lot, but he he learned so much vicariously from me anyway. And I think all hypnobirthing dads like learn so much about birth and then you hear them later when they all get together at the pub and they start talking about, you know, like, well, oh, the muscles of your uterus working together. And it's just like such a different world from what I've come from. But I think it's something that draws people in and you can't help but get passionate about it because it just makes so much good bloody sense um, that, yeah, I think you'll meet the most not interested in birth at all guy and you, you'll convert him with hypnobirthing generally speaking. So that's another great thing about it. Um, it gives partners something to do. It gives them, you know, they're not just a participant um, along the way or sometimes I suppose when you think about after when kids are born, like people refer to dads as babysitting. Um, it makes sure that dads or, you know, 
any partners. Like I want to be inclusive because um, hypnobirthing is very inclusive. It doesn't have to be just dads. But in my case, I have a partner who's a dad, so that's – I'll use that language. Um, you know, it, it made him feel like he could actually help as opposed to sit there and go, oh, this is unpleasant watching my loved one – you know, in pain or suffering or going through something like it's a process that you go through together and you have a role and there's a range of different things that you can learn, a range of different techniques and you may not use them all on the day. There may be some on the day that you can't stand, um, but it gives them options to just keep trying different things and, you know, you as the birthing woman have the option to say, no, I don't want to do that, go away. But it's better than having someone in your ear going, oh, oh, can I do anything? Can I do anything? Because the last thing you want when you're in the throes of labour is someone like asking you questions about what to do. Yeah, especially a loaded question like that, can I do anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, gee. Yeah. <laughs> where do you start? Yeah, that's so, such a good point um, about the partners in hypnobirthing. I just I see that too, um, a lot of male partners that have, um, well, male, sorry, male, female, whatever, um, that have gone through partners birthing in as partners in hypnobirthing if that all made sense yeah um yeah they've changed um and it's it's just really good to see that they are important in this and that if they want to be at the birth and they can support so yeah Mm. yeah so he was he was a great support like as i said he's um role was mostly being my personal massage therapist um and that's what I wanted at the time that was kind of um yeah that's what I wanted that's what I needed and he was there and I think also just having like that physical touch there that he I mean he didn't even break to like go to the toilet scratch his nose or anything but uh, I think also because I, yeah, as I said, I was face down, head in the pillow. I wasn't looking at anybody. I had my eyes closed. It was nice having that reassurance that he was there yeah. and that sort of familiar, um, that very, very familiar touch in a in an experience where often there's a lot of unfamiliar touch by unfamiliar people. Um, and some people hate being touched during labour and that's absolutely fine and it's totally normal. But I think for me having that just a hand on my back that was a hand that was familiar to me and a familiar smell and a familiar, you know, warmth and all of that was such a comfort because um, as I hit transition, I, I suspected I was hitting transition, but it was it was a very, very quiet time for me. I had a lot of uh, chatter, I suppose, in my head all of a sudden and, you know, like I went from focusing on my breathing to just all of a sudden deciding um, – I should break my concentration because I need to tell my husband where we've parked. Like, why would why would I need to tell him that? So I suddenly started having a like focus on erroneous details that didn't matter. Like, oh, we've parked on level four, right? I need to tell him that we've parked on level four. Where have we put the parking ticket? Like, you know, stuff that's totally not in any way, shape, or form necessary. But part of me, I suppose, realised what I was doing and I didn't actually break my concentration. I just sort of stayed in this bubble. So I'm sure I looked like I was still very relaxed and very in the zone, but in my head I was, yeah, asking all sorts of crazy questions of myself and thinking, um, oh, this is taking too long. This is just taking way too long. I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, And, of course, you know, baby was so close to coming, but that's transition for you, isn't it? Um, And then I think other people didn't realise I was in transition. So at some point someone came in and asked me, um, oh, is it okay if the student comes in and and watches? 
and this hadn't really been discussed before. I thought I'd remembered saying, oh, no, thanks, but whatever. Um, and at the time, like, I'm in my head, inside my head, I'm screaming, WTF, like, what? No, this is not the time for this. But, of course, again, like, so suggestible. I said, no, thank you, not today. And I just kept breathing. But, like, inside my head, I'm just screaming at my, you know, self going, what? Oh, I can't cope with this. This is oh, yep, okay, I know what this is, and I managed to just um, refocus. So that was that was an interesting experience. I think that the wobbly octopus was definitely getting very wobbly at that stage too, so I recognised all oh, that wobbly feeling in my legs, that's that's something. Um, so we, st- we sort of stand, standing the whole time? Or I was still standing bed? at that point. Um, I think my midwife had cottoned on at this stage. So to what was happening and she just came and had a quick look and um, said, oh, do you think you feel might, like you might want to push? And I'm like, oh, I don't really know. I've kind of got that feeling like I need to go to the toilet. But then I caught myself. I realised I was pushing anyway. Um, and so she helped me up onto the bed and I kind of, again, I just raised the bed up and I was on all fours on the bed and that was – it was definitely – on at that stage because um, I'd realised I was pushing and wasn't I hadn't told anybody um, and I think you know when you hypnobirth often like you're quite quiet and you look like you're just sort of I don't know <laughs> hanging out in a quiet zone and by that stage you, you could be pushing a baby out and nobody would know and there's so many um, stories I suppose in the hypnobirthing community where that's happened <laughs> where a baby's crowning nobody knows it's just all happening quite quietly um so, yeah, at that stage I knew I had to, like, soften my body a bit in between because those surges were just getting more and more and more intense and I could feel like I was tensing up all over. Um, and I think somewhere in that time I heard my obstetrician arrive and everything was just so loud. Like, it felt like people were not screaming but just, like, when you're at a party and people are talking over the top of music and I'm thinking, why are they talking so loud? And, of course, they're probably only talking in, like, a little whisper, um, you know, a bit of small talk, casual morning being that kind of thing. And again, I'm having that, like, why, why are you doing small talk? Don't you realise there's a baby coming out of my body? Like, hello? Um, but, no, people didn't realise. So it sort of um, turned from that into me, like, hearing some other noises and thinking, what is that noise? It sounds like a cow, like a really noisy It's me. Oh, I'm making those noises. So I just quickly, without even realising it, gone into that more um, like really, really active vocalising and I didn't even realise I was vocalising. I thought I was hearing something else or someone else and I realised, oh, it's me. It's me making that noise because there's a baby coming. Um so after that, there was a vague, uh, as people do, and I don't know why they do this. I suppose they think it's helpful and I suppose they think first-time mums, you know, it's that you need to be warned. So I'd heard someone kind of mention, oh, ring of fire. Um, and then, of course, I got Johnny Cash stuck in my head. And I was just about to say out. that. That just came straight into my <laughs> head. It would have probably if I was birthing and heard that too. <laughs> It was just, um, yeah, bizarre. So I think the strategy I tried at the time was to imagine it was just on the radio somewhere and I just kind of like in my mind's eye went and turned it down, like I don't know, floated out of my body or something and went and turned it down. Um, 
because I, it was just such a uh, it was just such not the right thing to say at the time. Like I, I knew it was coming. Um, I didn't know to be warned about it. And I think you know again that suggestibility thing. It just takes you out of what you're doing and it makes you focus on something that you don't necessarily need to focus on. But you know it was okay. It was manageable. It was just it was more annoying having the Johnny Cash song stuck in my head. Like <laughs> to be honest, because um, it's not what I wanted to be thinking about. Because um, before that, I'd had you know like people talk about oh what music are you going to choose for your birth and you get your playlist organised and um, before that I'd had this was around the thinking about the car park and where to park I'd had Cindy Lauper in my head because um, I think there's another hypnobirthing track called Rainbow Mist and I think in my slightly getting into transition things not making sense going a bit loopy state I'd been trying to access that thinking about rainbows thinking about colors so then of course I had true colors stuck in my head and I'm like this is not like neither of those songs would be things I would want on my playlist so what are they doing in my head but that's you know part of the journey and just going with where your mind (laughs) takes you at the time and going oh this is an interesting ride um rather than getting to like I don't want this in my head get rid of it get it out of it I think the journey of birth a big part of is just learning to let go and learning to just ride with whatever happens (laughs) absolutely your internal jukebox provided you those songs for some reason so (laughs) yeah bizarre choices maybe they were baby's choice who knows maybe she's gonna have (laughs) terrible tasty music um yeah so after that I was sort of in the zone and then um I remember someone saying to me it was probably my OB actually telling me to stop and telling me that I needed to listen to her and that was another trigger because in my head I'm thinking no I don't I'm gonna I'm gonna keep pushing so she told me to stop pushing for a second and I'm like no 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 thank you I'm gonna just do what I want um and i kept pushing and then I remember her saying again like okay just slow it down for a second and then I think I heard her saying to my husband do you see that little hand just there so I think she just needed to do a little bit of maneuvering um because Stella came out kind of not quite hand first but hand on her face and so I think they were sort of trying to just (laughs) move it out of the way um so that would be easier for her to come out but look I didn't really I don't know, I wasn't paying attention to that at the time. I was just more focused on the sensations that were happening. Um, But that wasn't too long anyway. And then, you know, she was out. And I think that so many women would have that same experience of that relief that you feel for a second when you know that the head's out. Um, Or maybe you don't know that the baby's head's out, but there's, there's like a big surge of, oh, that just feels more comfortable all of a sudden. Um, so there's a little bit of a break there and then yeah the rest of her kind of came and um, she was passed up to me while I tried to sort of sit up on my wobbly knees and and that was that was it Um, and I think the first thing I said to her was happy birthday and then because I was on such a post-birth comfort high um, I thanked everyone for coming I said, oh, thanks for coming, everyone. (laughs) Like, you know, thanks for coming to see my play or thanks for coming to see my performance. Um, Yeah, I always think it's interesting asking people what what was the first thing they said because you hear some interesting things. Like sometimes people say, oh, it's a baby or, oh, you know, um, I've heard some interesting things over the years. I can't think of any others at the time. But, yeah, I said, oh, happy birthday. 
I love it. And how how did you feel like that moment just really deep down into your psychological self? Um, can you, in retrospect, sort of put into words that feeling of becoming, um, you know, mother in a sense? It was interesting because I didn't have – actually neither my husband or I had that kind of like big gush of overwhelming emotions. It was almost as if like I – suddenly couldn't remember life without her. Like this was, like it sounds odd, but just any other day. She just happened to be here now. So it sort of just felt very, um, I don't know, I just felt quite calm and quite like, oh, yep, this is just the way this is supposed to be. And I think, you know, kind of that talking about, you know, like life flashing before your eyes before you had it, like I just suddenly couldn't remember anything about my life before her. Um, it comes back to you, of course, but in that moment it was just like, oh, yeah, this is this is just how my life is meant to be. That little piece of the puzzle's just gone into place now and everything's clicked and I feel quite good about it. So it wasn't really um, – I don't know. I think the endorphins made me quite mellow at that stage. That's kind of how I would describe it. I know some people feel like elated or they feel ecstatic or they feel relieved. I just felt really, really mellow. Like, mm. yeah, I'm nice and calm. This is just, this is all good. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's about all I remember in terms of the actual emotional aspect of it. I remember after um, people sort of saying, like my obstetrician had said, did you even break a sweat? I'm like, yeah, I broke a sweat. You were there. But I think, again, your internal experience of birth versus other people's external, you know, outside looking in can be so different and what you imagine went on is so different to what other people actually see. So for me, like I'm thinking like, yeah, this was intense. This was hard work. But I suppose to other people it just looked like I was, I don't know, in a nice zone of quiet comfort and just, you know, quietly um, pushed a baby out and made it look easy. And it's like, well, yeah, I wouldn't say it was easy. Um but I guess it was interesting, um, the sticky beakers that kind of came in after because uh, my, yeah, my midwife, she was kind of uh, kind of newish, I suppose, and there was that vibe from some of the older midwives about, oh, you know, when she was saying, oh, you know, she's going to deliver them, like, no, 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 she's got ages to go. So I think, you know, seeing that kind of like, oh, they underestimated her a little bit, like her – I suppose, innate wisdom of being able to read, you know, her birthing woman's body and read what's happening and she knew, like, what was going on. And um, But, yeah, that sort of, oh, you know, first time mum's not going to have a baby in an hour and a half. She's not going to get induced without an epidural. What is this? So, yeah, we had some sticky beakers coming in just to, like, see, oh, what's this hypnobirthing stuff? Yeah, I guess it works then. Okay, that was interesting. So then there were um, – you know, sort of in between the procedural things, I suppose, that happened in that last stage of labour, um, questions, you know, about, oh, how does it work and what were you doing and what did you have to do to get in a trance? And it was all kind of just like watching over me. I'm like, yeah, I'll tell you about it later. Like, um, got other priorities at the moment. But, yeah, it was interesting. Like, people were fascinated by what is this thing that I did and, like, what's well, not. It's so, not so, anything magical. How long was it in total by the time you got to the hospital at 8 o'clock? What time mm. was you born? So I suppose my waters were broken about 9. 
I think, nine-ish, and Stella was born 11.30, 11.35. Wow. Mm. She was ready to come then. <laughs> well, once, yeah, once she was um, got the eviction notice, that was that was <laughs> it. <laughs> ah, so do you want to just tell us briefly how uh, postpartum went with you and then we can talk about afterwards just your work um, and just focus on birth trauma too, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, look, postpartum was – it was interesting. Um, I had – I suppose a couple of complications that were oh, a bit freaky, really. So um, it's interesting going back to this idea and uh, this little hand coming out. So on her exit, um, yeah, Stella had kind of ripped a good amount on her way out and it was all just internal and it was all contained and, you know, as my OB said to me, like it's not standard that we, um, you know, investigate, get in there and have a look because it's invasive and why would you? Like you don't need to. Usually um, tears and things like that are pretty obvious externally and, you know, you have stitches and whatever and so I had a couple of tiny little external stitches and, you know, there was I wasn't in any discomfort, I wasn't in any pain, there was no sign that there was anything to check for. Um, but, yeah, sometimes these kind of freaky injuries happen and in my case I just think, like, I'm so glad I didn't get that epidural because I wouldn't have noticed the pain for a good long time after. So probably... About an hour after we kind of did skin to skin and bonding, I started feeling like, again, it wasn't pain, like the adrenaline and all those hormones, like natural pain hormones in my body were just like gushing through. Um, so I had, again, what felt like mm, a bit of discomfort. And I remember sort of saying to my midwife, like, I've got a bit of discomfort in my lower back. And so I just started with a bit of a, well, I'll put a heat pack on it. And then sort of as time progressed, it it turned into more like what I would describe as pain. And then I kind of came out of the bubble then and I think that fight or flight response kicked in and I kind of like knew, yeah, something's something's not right. Um, and look, as, it's, as I said, it just turned out to be an internal tear, but because it wasn't picked up straight away, as it wouldn't be, as I said, it's not kind of standard practice that you have any sort of internal exam after you give birth it just meant that I was sitting in discomfort um for a while without realizing that that discomfort was actually turning into something that needed investigation um and so it was a matter of going into surgery I had a general anesthetic um and they did the internal exam properly there because they couldn't examine me um by this point I was in too much distress and I'd had a bit of gas towards the end someone suggested, oh, would you like some gas, Like, which is kind of funny to think about. Like that's usually suggested during labour, not after. And so I had a bit of that and that made me feel completely loopy. And, again, I was still pretty suggestible because I remember seeing one of the midwives coming in and raising her eyebrows to another midwife. And so me off my face on gas and air said, put your eyebrows down. <laughs> she looked at me and said, I know. I'm a psychologist. Eyebrows up means something wrong. So if you don't want me to stress, put your eyebrows down. Um, and she sort of <laughs> made up some excuse about uh, something 
totally different. And I'm just like, no, nah, I'm calling you bluff. There's something wrong, isn't there? Just, oh, no, no, no. I said, better put your eyebrows down. So that was a weird sort of experience of, um, I think, being thrust into that world of there's not necessarily that something's wrong or that there's a problem, but people don't know what's going on. And suddenly a room fills and there's people around you and people are talking about you as if you're not even there, as if, um, you know, you just need one person to kind of say, oh, I acknowledge you, this is what's happening. And so for me, um, all the sort of hustle and bustle of trying to wheel me off to surgery, it was actually the um, anaesthetist who just took my hand, he held it and he said, you're okay. We're just going to put you in surgery, have a look, see what's going on. You're okay. And he patted my hand again. And it just made such a world of difference. Again, that, you know, connection, because I think sometimes when things go a bit unexpected, um, people sometimes focus on problem solving and management and what needs to happen next. And they forget, oh, there's a person still there and they don't know what's going on either. And they just need some reassurance that everything's all right. So, yeah, postpartum was a little bit tricky. Look, again, it was manageable. It was okay. Um, I just didn't have quite the get-up-and-go energy that I would have liked, ideally. Um, but as I said, freaky things happen. I had a slightly freaky thing happen to me. Um, and as I said, I think part of that, again, was um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have synthetic pain management because it would have taken quite a bit longer, I suspect, for them to realise that something wasn't quite as it should be. Um, I mean, I'd hemorrhaged. I'd lost quite a bit of blood. But again, you know, that point between mm, what's a sort of regular <laughs> regular hemorrhage if there's kind of a thing after birth, but, you know, kind of what's a – I didn't know, you know, as a first-time mum, like I'm kind of thinking like I'm no, I know to expect blood loss. But I don't, I don't, I didn't really know how much. And then there was a point where I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's, you know, not within the average realm of blood loss. But again, people don't tell you things, and so you start, your brain starts responding to not what people are saying, but what their body's doing and what their body language is doing. And as I said, I was obviously really responding to that, um, you know, raised eyebrows and glances, and like knowing that something was happening and people weren't telling me. And that's probably because I didn't really know what was happening either. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a bit of a different experience. But I think, again, being able to go back and use those relaxation strategies and those coping strategies helped me again. So it helped me to not completely and utterly panic and freak out, but to just go, okay, yep, I just need to go back into my bubble of comfort and, you know, go with the journey and trust that my body's okay, my baby's okay and everything's fine. So, yeah. Um, how did it feel to get home? What was that feeling like? It was so strange because um, I think when I was going into labour, like my biggest concern wasn't at that stage about the labour or about the birth. It was about leaving my dogs like, uh-huh. <laughs> at home because um, we'd moved and, um, you know, there was a new person coming to look after them. And so it was really weird going back into our house with a baby. Um, my oldest dog was eight, I think, at that time, and my youngest one was probably just two. So, yeah, going back into the house with this new person and wondering, like, how are they going to cope? And because the other thing I'd done along the way was um, 
I trained my dogs to like prepare for a baby. So there's this amazing book if anybody's got animals, cats or dogs. Um, the one I used was for dogs, uh, which is, uh, what's it called? Uh, Tell your dog you're pregnant. And so it comes with a bunch of training techniques and um, a bunch of MP3s that you gradually just get your dogs used to the noises of babies in the background, you know, the noises of screaming and toys and, um, you know, things like that so that they can get used to the get used to the baby before the baby's there and I found that so useful so by the time I mean they were fine by the time the baby came they just acted as if she'd always been there and that was amazing great resource yeah he's um I'm pretty sure he's a Melbourne guy he's a vet um yeah there's how there's tell your dog you're pregnant there's tell your cat you're pregnant and as I said that yeah it's just a little kind of training manual and even if you just like stick on the mp3s and um get your animals used to the noise like it's just a good way of slowly 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 introducing it just to see what they react to my older dog could not have cared less she was not the slightest bit phased but my younger one who is still a pup um the noise of like squeaky baby toys because of course they sound like squeaky dog toys like she had big reactions to that and i know for a while like when stella was older obviously and could play with toys squeaky toys were quite a trigger for her like it was quite quite difficult for her to learn to share so yeah, all these little things that you don't think of, but I guess things that make transition back to home quite easy. So, yeah, going back home was just like, oh, yeah, this is like what we've always done. Um, it just felt totally, totally normal, really. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that journey. Um, it was really interesting just to see, like you said, how you used your hypnobirthing and it was amazing to see that you just studied it right at the end it was obviously for a reason and just turned out to have that birth experience and head into not just the birth or focus on the birth but you know the end of your pregnancy um, and then parenting from then on in I'm sure hypnobirthing sort of extends itself beyond just birth doesn't it oh absolutely I mean I, I would say like these are you know, it's a snapshot of your life for nine months and then, you know, like a day that you give birth. But like these are skills that you pass on to your kids, like learning how to relax, learning, you know, how to let go of tension, learning how how birthing body works, like whether you have boys or girls, it doesn't matter. Like I think these are skills that you just pass on to each generation and each generation and each generation. So that we go back to, I suppose, what, you know, the idea of birth used to be hundreds of years ago, which wasn't this medicalized, scary, you know, procedure, if you like, but it was just a normal, a normal process that, um, you know, people coped with. And it was not seen as anything like taboo or weird or scary. It was just, normal run-of-the-mill kind of stuff so I suppose yeah part of my wishful thinking you know if I was a really old octogenarian lying on my deathbed would be to hope you know that future generations don't have this same anxiety about birth that we do that we go back to this more simplistic you know see birth for what it is in most circumstances it is a normal straightforward positive process yeah, so can we just quickly before we finish the podcast talk about birth trauma and perhaps head into that with the work that you're doing and how what does birth trauma look like in your field of work? Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess if you look at it from the perspective of 
like even just thinking about post-traumatic stress disorder. So our definition of, I suppose, whether you can be diagnosed with it or not has changed in the last couple of years. And I don't necessarily think it's been a change for the good. It's really confused people about... um, you know, being able to quantify their experience as to whether, you know, to say, well, is this trauma or is it not trauma? So it used to be you could diagnose post-traumatic stress disorder if you had seen something traumatic, heard something traumatic or directly experienced something dramatic. So I think it's sort of um, moved away from that definition because I think the research community were having – fears and anxieties of their own, that too many people were coming and saying, oh, I've got PTSD. So we know, I guess, with sort of the digital age and increase with media, there were people sort of um, quite legitimately like having post-traumatic stress reactions to, say, watching hours and hours and hours and hours of um, 9-11 footage or... um, you know, I think even before that, like with the Port Arthur Massacre, you know, there's research that indicates that for some people um, who witness something, they don't have to have directly been there, but they've just watched it, they have the same reactions that people would have as if they were there. Um, so, again, the brain is like a powerful thing and, it, you know, it, is, it can be quite suggestible. So, again, now the definition is you have to have directly experienced a trauma in order to be classified as having PTSD, um, which isn't necessarily that helpful because you think, you know, what about paramedics? What about police officers? What about... Um, you know, partners of people who witness horrific things happening to say that because they didn't directly experience it, their experiences can't be put into those quantifiable words. If that's helpful for them to say you've got PTSD, it just seems a bit um, ridiculous to me. But anyway, so I think that's where some of the confusion has come in. Like people feel like they're not allowed to say that it was trauma because to say that something was traumatic is to mean like it's it's really serious and it's um, something to give attention to. And I think sometimes when traumatic things happen to us, particularly during birth, like oh, there's this great article I read not that long ago actually. It's called something like, um, oh, at least you've got a healthy husband. And it's good because it goes through sort of like comparing you know, like a wedding to your birth. And so, you know, we're so quick in like the birth world, I guess, to say, well, at least you've got a healthy baby. Like it doesn't matter if this happened, that happened, that happened. doesn't matter how you feel. doesn't matter what you experienced as a birthing woman. It's all about the baby and the, the outcome of the healthy baby. But if you took that same analogy and applied it to a wedding, like for some reason, like people are just a lot more sympathetic with weddings. So if you turn up and, um, you know, some toddler vomits all over the bride's dress, like no one says to you, oh, well, at least you've got a healthy husband. Um, you know, if your flowers aren't right or someone gives you drag queen makeup on the day, like people are generally a lot more empathic and say, oh, you know, this sucks. It's your wedding day. I'm really, really sorry. No one says at least you've got a healthy husband. You know, stop complaining. At least you've got a healthy husband get on with it, forget about it. But, yeah, in birth, we're kind of just expected that, yeah, as I said, it doesn't matter what happened to you, that you're supposed to just move on and get over it or or even worse, that, again, there's this culture of 
oh, that's just the club. That's the secret birth trauma club. Didn't you know? Now you're part of it. It's, this is stuff. This is just what women go through, um, and so you'll have to suffer your bit too. You don't hear the rest of us complaining, like all that kind of really um, demoralising, degrading kind of language that comes around trauma when something has happened that hasn't gone the way you wanted it to happen. Whether it's something that other people see as traumatic or not is irrelevant. It comes down to the birthing woman and how she feels and, you know, what happens to her in that state of vulnerability of being you know not just physically vulnerable but really 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 emotionally vulnerable and so suggestible to anything that anybody says to you particularly if it's about your ability to cope or your ability to you know give birth properly whatever that means or you know whether it's around the language about failure to progress or this is taking too long or um you know, you're not dilating enough and like all this sort of language that's based around failure um, with the overriding message that, yep, the outcome is a healthy baby. It's, it's just a lot of support that's missed along the way. So I think like it's quite easy for women to get traumatised. Like I can see so easily how it happens. So when people say, you know, things like, oh, birth trauma isn't real or you're just being a bit sensitive, like it really quite pisses me off really because I just think like – Again, um, I always just think back to this thing about the healthy husband. Like you don't say to somebody, oh, you've got a healthy husband, get on with it. So it's it's quite a complex thing and I think it has to be, as I said, it has to be about what that particular woman is experiencing and what she needs to express, not having people going, oh, well, let me tick off on my list. Does this actually sound like trauma or not? Um, my textbook says no it doesn't fit the criteria. So, no, you're not traumatised, you're just being a wimp. So, yeah, it's a it's a tricky thing to deal with. And I think even, um, even people who work in trauma, like as a general field, don't necessarily understand that much about birth trauma. Um, again, because it's not like a car accident. It's not like a mass shooting. It is something that is like an everyday event, sure, it's normal most of the time, yeah, sure, but it can be so life-alteringly positive or so life-alteringly negative for people just depending on what happens to them at the time. Yeah, and so um, I know you wrote here that you work with people as young as nine months and as old as 90 years. <laughs> must be, must <laughs> yeah. be fantastic to have the job that you do and to serve, I guess, in that respect and look at it in the birth the birth world now too i think um when you when you actually see people make that change it's it's just amazing so i mean my my job really is always is to change beliefs like my job is to convince people of something that they don't yet believe in and then ideally have it so that they end up coming back to you repeating <laughs> things that you told them at the start that they don't remember that they got from you. They think they sort of – not that they think they came up with it themselves, but like it's actually – it's meaningful to them now. They've actually taken on you, – you can see them taking on a new belief system um, and then they take that and then they go and teach someone else. So, you know, ideally, yeah, the sort of journey for me is to see someone who has a fixed belief about something that needs to change because it's not – 
helping them see that they've changed it and not only that they're going out and telling everybody else that they know about it um which is ideally you know what we want i'm a big believer in the kind of um teach a woman teach a man to fish that's that's what i want really um you know i sometimes say to clients like i know it sounds strange but it's that i hope i don't see you again um in the capacity of like doing clinical work obviously um the perinatal kind of hypnobirthing stuff is quite different but i mean in terms of that when somebody's unwell and they're at a really rough place in life to see them sort of make those changes feel a lot more confident and not need me anymore that's like the biggest gift um for me like i don't want to see people forever (laughs) i'm not into the like um lie down on the couch and see me for the rest of your life kind of stuff that's that's not me it works really well for some people but for me it's like no let's let's get you feeling confident and let you know feeling back on track and then you don't have to come and talk to people like me anymore yeah well said they we've all got the tools inside us don't we to yeah yeah thank you so much erin it was a pleasure um we've had a really oh, my good pleasure conversation too. i just enjoyed listening to this story um i'm sure it's going to help a few people, if not many. Yeah, look, that's always the goal. Just one. Just one. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. That's what I said about this podcast when I started it. Yeah. If it just affects <laughs> one person, then it's that's one of many. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure too. Absolutely. Did you connect with this episode? Then head over to our website, circleofbirth.com. There you'll find show notes, pictures, resources, and potentially connect with today's storyteller, Don't forget to sign up to be updated with new empowering episodes and content. Help the show grow by contributing a tip in the jar to make sure we can continue to better the podcast and connect more and more to the wisdom and birth and each other. Hey, and don't forget the iTunes rating. This has been another episode of the Birth Share Project. We breathe, we birth, we empower. We empower.